Before we get into the show today, please take a second and review the Force 5 podcast on whatever platform you listen on. Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, literally wherever you cast those pods. Reviewing the show really helps me out. I've said it before, but I don't have any paid tiers. I don't do Patreon stuff. I don't take donations. I invest a lot of time into this show, so please leave a review and let me know you appreciate the work I put in. That's my plea. Enjoy the show. And now, for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, but five, Force Five. Welcome, listeners. I'm Jason Kleberg, and you're listening to the Force Five podcast, a show that has a guest come on each week who's forced to come up with a movie-themed top five list, and then we talk about our picks on air. I've got a pair of awesome guests today. Scott Wampler and Eric Vespi, hosts of the King Cast, which is maybe the biggest and certainly the best Stephen King podcast to grace your ears, are stopping in to talk top five underrated Stephen King adaptations. And I already know that Scott is going to absolutely hate one, one of the picks on my list, but I'm stubborn. I'm not changing it. First up, let's talk about what I've been watching. First thing I want to touch on is a horror movie from 1995 called Last Gasp. I was assured that the construction site was in a controlled area. It is. It's inhabited by Kotek. Their presence jeopardizes the construction of a project in which I have a substantial dollar investment. Can't get too near it, I am Totek. Something to do with their spirits. Their spirits? May God forgive us. I don't need forgiveness. I can live with myself. A real estate developer named Leslie Chase, played by Robert Patrick, gets stuck in a difficult situation when an Indian tribe gets mad that he's developing on their land. Instead of making a deal with them or asking them to leave nicely, he just murders them all with shotguns. Unfortunately, when he murders the chief, something happens and he becomes possessed with the same murderous rage with a penchant for slashing Achilles tendons and a taste for human flesh. A while later, Nora Weeks' husband, Julian, goes missing near the development. She hires a private detective to figure out where he went, and they both run into Mr. Chase in the process. So what's good about this movie? Well, you get to see Robert Patrick chew the screen and look directly into the camera multiple times, so that's a plus. Joanna Pacula is great as the female lead. She's definitely acting way harder than she needed to. There's not really much in terms of gore, but there's quite a bit of nudity. It doesn't all make sense. Take the couple that jaunts off into a cornfield to bang just feet away from a perfectly good truck, but it's well done. And there's a particular scene in which Robert Patrick bangs Mimi Craven, yes, Wes Craven's ex-wife, that's very well done. We never see Leslie Chase become a cannibal, but we sure as hell watch him eat Mimi. There's one scene that's so wildly out of place that I almost fell out of my chair laughing. See, Nora is distraught that her husband, Julian, has gone missing. So distraught that we get to see a flashback of them banging. It switches to a very Dawson's Creek-esque music track during this scene in which we see way more of Julian than we do Nora. Honestly, it felt like it belonged in another film entirely. Robert Patrick needed a better agent in the 90s after what could have been an absolute star-making turn as the T-1000 in Terminator 2, he was cast in the worst bottom-of-the-barrel films up until Copland in 1997, and yes, Last Gasp is one of those turds. He's great as a, this suave real estate developer who sometimes puts on face paint and kills people, 
but they try to paint him as sympathetic at one point, and it just doesn't work. Look, we don't care that he doesn't want to go on these murder hunts to kill people. And you know why? Because he helped murder an entire tribe of Indians. He's also apparently extra stupid because he's invested a large amount of money to build on this land that he didn't know was inhabited. Surely a little bit of research would have uncovered that very minor fact. There's also no explanation of any of the supernatural elements of the curse, but there are a shitload of questions. Why does the soul jump from body to body? Why does Robert Patrick need to toss on face paint and Indian gear before he goes wild? And why are the police in this town so absolutely worthless? This feels like a TNT made-for-TV film, but with boobs. Lots of tight shots, dark cinematography, editing that doesn't exactly line up, stupid music, and ending twists that you'll see coming from a country mile, and characters that you won't really give a shit about. I got this disc from Vinegar Syndrome, but it just turned out to be another dud for me. I get that some people probably have an attachment to it from when they were younger, but it just felt like a disappointing film from all aspects. Now this week's conversation is bound to run a bit long with two guests on the show, so I'm going to hit you with some quick hits of what I've been watching just to get a few more things into your ear holes. I normally wait until I see a full series until reviewing it, but I watched the first episode of the HBO foreign language series 30 Coins, and I think every horror fan needs to check this out. It's about a mysterious priest who migrates to a small town in Spain and a bunch of coins, of which there's probably 30 if my detective skills are on point, that date back to the crucifixion of Jesus. The pilot episode is about an hour and a half long, and it's brilliant. Super tense, had a few scenes that had me thinking, like, what the hell is going on here? And it's got some terrifying imagery. If you're a fan of horror films, check out 30 Coins. I can't yet speak for the rest of the series, but the first episode is great. I also saw the new Netflix film Bad Trip starring Eric Andre, Lil Rel Howery, and Tiffany Haddish. It's a mixture of a buddy comedy film and a prank show in the same vein as something like Bad Grandpa. It's very funny, even if a lot of the pranks seem very manufactured. There's some really great moments in this that had my wife and I laughing for long periods of time. Definitely worth checking out if you have someone to watch it with. Finally, Godzilla vs. Kong is exactly what you'd think it might be. Giant lumbering monsters punching each other amidst a snoozer plot featuring boring, regular humans that you can't wait to just get out of the way so you can see more of those giant monsters punching each other in the face. So that's what I've been watching. It's almost time to get the King cast in here, but first, a word from our sponsor. I don't need to be Johnny Smith from the Dead Zone to know what you're thinking, because I can tell there are two things on your mind right now. The first is this podcast because you're listening to it, and the second is fried chicken. So where are you going to go? Kentucky Fried Chicken? <laughs> More like finger licking gross. Chick-fil-A? Good luck feeling good about eating a chicken sandwich while carrying the giant burden on your shoulders of supporting a restaurant that hates gay people. No, fuck those other places. You're going to go to Los Pollos Hermanos. They have the zestiest chicken using only the finest herbs and spices, all prepared with loving care and always delivered with a friendly smile. That's the Los Pollos Hermanos promise. Try the onion frames or the slaw goodman and you'll realize that the old ways are still best at Los Pollos Hermanos. Slow cooked to perfection, but don't take my word for it. One taste and you'll know. Welcome back. This is the Force 5 Podcast, and joining me tonight, 1,730 miles to my right in Austin, Texas, we've got Scott Wampler and Eric Vespi. You've probably read their work on sites like Collider, Ain't It Cool News, and Birth, Movies, Death, but for the past year, coming up on a year, I, I believe, 
they've created and co-host the King Cast, a Stephen King podcast for Stephen King obsessives, which I've been listening to as part of the Fangoria Network. How are you, gentlemen? Uh, pretty good. Pretty fantastic. Yeah. Great. Ready for a ready for a little break? Maybe we've been recording our asses off lately. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but yeah, it's good yeah. to good to stay ahead of the game. Good to stay ahead of the game. And without spoiling anything, uh, we we have so many recordings lined up for a very particular reason, <laughs> and uh, it is uh, yeah we're not we're not going easy on ourselves, which is which is good news for our listeners, and it's you know probably good for us too to keep us busy and not you know inside our own heads or what whatnot. <laughs> yeah, no one wants to be found hanging in their garage uh, because they've been, <laughs> they've been locked in their house for a year. Um, but speaking of our uh, just building off what Eric just said without spoiling anything. And also to loop back around to something you said a minute ago about our one year is coming up. Uh, I would expect something big from us uh, on our for our one year anniversary show. I'll say that. Which is coming up in May. Yeah. I know just recently you've been prolific too, just releasing episodes one after another. Yeah, no, we, we got frozen inside of our houses in Texas. And uh, and we, for the first time in the show's history, we had to miss a week. Uh, we usually debut every Wednesday. And <laughs> uh, unfortunately, it's kind of hard to do when you don't have any power or internet or heat. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, we missed a week and we decided to make up for it by like throwing an episode a day the next week on, on the uh, the main feed. For somebody who's never heard of the King cast, listen to the King cast. Tell us a little bit more about it. Like what? Obviously, it's for Stephen King fans, but tell them about what you do. Yeah, it's, it's for movie fans as well. The whole idea is we kind of look at Scott and I are both big Stephen King nerds. We're also big movie geeks and. Uh, thankfully pretty much everything that King has ever written, uh, short story, novella, <laughs> thousand page book, 300 page book has been adapted in some form. So, uh, each episode of our show, we bring in a guest. Sometimes it's, a an actor like Elijah Wood or, uh, a director, like we had Ryan Johnson on. Sometimes it's a comedian, like uh, pretty much all anybody we find interesting journalists, uh, you name it. We even had uh, Damien Eccles, who was, uh, you know, infamously one of the members of the uh, West Memphis Three, who was wrongfully imprisoned. Um, and he, funnily enough, one of his, uh, yeah, I remember watching Paradise Lost, which is a documentary based on his trial. And like, I remember watching it as a, you know, kind of a, a, an outsider-ish kid who read Stephen King. And at the trial, this, you know, this young man, I think he was 16 or 18 at the time. The prosecuting attorney was like, like this kid has, we found a bunch of Stephen King books in his room and he listens to Metallica. So he certainly killed these, you know, these murdered these children. And uh, so we're like, oh, it'd be great if we could get him on the show since he was actually like put on death row based on <laughs> partially on his love of Stephen King. And, uh, and uh, he came on the show and he's a huge Dark Tower fan, which is Stephen King's kind of magnum opus and fantasy series. Uh, they made a really shitty movie out of it, but you know, the books are great. And, uh, uh, he came on the show and, and, you know, essentially was just talking about how the dark tower series kept him sane while he was on death row for almost 20 years, you know, so we, we, you know, kind of run, run the gamut, but the whole idea is that we usually break down the differences in adaptation. So if we talk about misery, we'll talk about what the book did differently than what the, you know, what the movie was. And, and we, uh, all of our guests are bring, bring us the titles. It's always something, you know, that we're finding is, uh, 
kind of a common thing around uh, creatives today is that there are so many people working now are inspired by King. They grew up reading King and, and uh, love his stuff. So, you know, we, uh, th- that's kind of the, the idea of the show. Hear famous people talk about Stephen King. That's it. <laughs> right. And, and us. And, and <laughs> every once in a while. I think that hearing from someone like, like Ryan or Mike Flanagan or, you know, Elijah or Kamel Nanjiani. Yeah. Brian Fuller. Yeah. Brian Fuller. Like hearing these people just really geek out. Like you love these guys and uh, w- women and men. We have, we, we are, we are not discriminatory in that way. Um, <laughs> but <clears throat> hearing creatives whose work you really like in other areas, be it film or television or writers. We have a pornographer coming up on the show soon. Hearing them like geek out on Stephen King shit for an hour is really cool. You know what I mean? Especially if you're a King fan. It's it's nice to hear these people in a mode outside of them promoting whatever their project is. I mean, we let them do that at the end of every episode, but like that's not what it's for. We found that uh, the guests respond very strongly to that as well. I think they're happy to be talking about something other than themselves for a while. And it's cool to to hear, like, you don't limit it to one podcast about it. Right. Like, if you have somebody that really wants to do it, their story is different from anybody else's. So they come on and talk about it. That was sort of the the masterstroke idea that we sort of stumbled into early (laughs) on. You know, the realization that if we're assigning homework to people, if we're, or if we're only doing one episode per title, then that's going to feel very limiting. And also, you know, what if the people just straight up don't like that one? The The key is getting the guest to pick whichever title we're talking about, because that means that that guest has some sort of personal connection to it or they're, you know, passionate about it in one way or another that is unique to them. And so that allows us to do uh, titles multiple times. You know, some of them we don't need to do for a while. Like we don't need a another running man for a minute or a, another <laughs> another pet cemetery. Allowing the guests to come to the table with what they're really excited about, or you know, if they hated the movie, something they just want to spout off about is sort of the the secret to the whole thing. Be honest, you just didn't want to do an episode on Cell. <laughs> oh, we're gonna do one. We just did a we just recorded an episode on Dolan's Cadillac that'll be airing in the next few months. Oh, Christian Slater's finest. Oh, <laughs> I, I'm shocked that you even know that there was a movie. I didn't know there was a movie. And, and I, I'm, I'm, you know, kind of putting myself out there as a quasi King expert. Uh, and boy, is that movie not good. No, no, it is not. <laughs> well, let's talk about some good movies. Yes. Mm. It's time to get to the list. You know what's going to happen? All right, uh, gentlemen, you kind of came with a, a list, just like a combined list, which is probably a good idea, so we don't have too much crossover. Yep. yep. Uh, why don't you kick us off with your number five on underrated or underappreciated Stephen King adaptations? I think that we'd probably put Dolores Claiborne at number five. Dolores Claiborne, what the hell? Oh, my God. You killed her. This is not a trial. This is a preliminary inquest in all cases of death as suspicious in nature. Someone to see you here. I told you I don't want no lawyer. 
Dolores, it's your daughter. When was your last visit? 15 years ago. It is uh, the Serious King era, you know, where this was like right after uh, Shawshank, I think, is is when this came out. And Mm -hmm. so there was this, the 90s was like pretty hardcore for movie adaptations, was pretty hardcore, like Serious King. There wasn't a whole lot of uh, genre King uh, adapted in the 90s. Yeah. Um, but Dolores Claiborne is Kathy Bates once again entering into the world of Stephen King. She was she was nominated and won, I believe, an Oscar for playing Annie Wilkes in Misery, and that's how everybody kind of kind of knew her. So it was you know kind of a big deal at the time. Um, it is a very it's like a main movie through and through. Like her, she goes full on Northeast accent, which is. Uh, which is great. I love it. I, whether it's over the top or perfectly done, I'm, I'm a sucker for a main accent. Um, but as an adaptation, it takes some pretty big swings. The novel is told exclusively from Dolores's point of view that she's this old caretaker, uh, and the woman that she's caretaking dies. And so she's being, you know, interviewed by the police. And then we get this whole backstory where, it's kind of an an open secret that Dolores killed her husband, uh, you know, uh, many years before. And so most of this is the story of, uh, as told by Dolores, like, I'm just laying it all out. This is what my life is and this is what I've done. And, you know, I'm not guilty of this crime, but I'll tell you why I killed my husband um, kind of thing. And it's told in an investigatory sense and they don't do that in the movie. And they also like make her daughter played by Jennifer Jason Lee in the movie, like a much bigger, different character that needs like closure and blames her mom for a bunch of stuff. That's not really her fault. And it's becomes this mother daughter story, which the book really isn't, but, uh, but it works and tonally it feels very right. And I think it's a very good movie. It's just one that nobody ever really talks about. Uh, Dolores Claiborne. I have not seen this one for somebody who likes, Misery, I mean, Misery's all-time classic. You think this is a good companion piece or is this completely different? It's very it's very different. I mean, M- Misery is kind of a miracle movie. If we were making a list of the best Stephen King adaptations, Misery would be on there. Um, and not Dolores Claiborne, uh, just in terms of like overall best movie. But it, it's mm-hmm. great in, in that, you know, you still have the Kathy Bates connection and she's killing it. It's a completely different kind of role. She's a sympathetic character you know in more ways than annie wilkes's that's for damn sure it, it, it very much captures king's voice both both movies do so i guess you could make that connection i, I wouldn't necessarily say it'd be a good double feature to throw on misery and then follow <laughs> it up with the kind of leaves turning brown you know new england dreary gray <laughs> gray understated uh, drama of dolores claiborne right yes. got it okay cool well, for my number five, I went with more, I guess this is kind of my more grounded pick as well. And that's 1998's Apt Pupil. Mm, that's that's an interesting that's title. That's a bold choice, buddy. I want to hear about it. Hear about what? Everything. What? Everything. Everything they're afraid to show us in school. Far from the shadow of suspicion. Far from the scene of any crime. Todd Bowden has discovered a secret. If you could let me in for a minute, I just want to talk. Talk? I don't have anything to say to you, boy. You were there. You did those things. I'm an American. You've no right to come here and say these lies about me. I have your fingerprints. I have your photographs. 
What do you want? I want to hear about it. Everything. It is. So this one, obviously directed by Brian Singer, uh, and there will be some drama that comes up <laughs> with Singer here, but great cast. You have Brad Renfro, Ian McKellen, David Schwimmer, and David Schwimmer's mustache plays yes. a huge role in this. Renfro plays this kid named Todd. He's about to graduate high school, and he discovers that his neighbor was a Nazi officer on World War II. But instead of doing what most people would do, he befriends the Nazi and tries to learn about what it would be like to be a part of the Holocaust. I know this was adapted from a Stephen King short story. Yep. It was attempted like many times. And I think in 1987, they actually shot like 40 minutes worth of footage with uh, with that piece of shit Ricky Schroeder <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> as the kid. Yep. And uh, instead of becoming a Nazi in the movie, now he just helps post bail for white supremacists yeah. instead of playing them on screen. Chud. <laughs> <laughs> it is a little creepy. Like it's It's definitely weird watching it now, seeing singer direct this film which is essentially an older man grooming a young boy mm-hmm. and hearing about what happened on set it doesn't feel like it's not one that i want to go back and rewatch, right. but the performances are really good and i do think it's an interesting study of influence and then the way that they changed the ending was also really interesting like if the ending in the movie happened the way that it happens in the book we would probably never see this movie on shelves now because <laughs> it's about like a mass shooting mm-hmm. And in the book, it was like a 13-year-old or a 12-year-old. It's a solid narrative. I think that it got pushed under the rug because, well, even in the 90s, because it came out a week before American History X, was, which was by far the better film. And I guess if you're uh, in October of 1998, you just have to choose which Nazi movie you want to put your money on. <laughs> right. It's not like, not like Volcano, where you can watch that and Dante's Peak and have a good time. Yeah. So. Apt Pupil from 98 is my number five. I've still never seen it. We talked about, we did an episode on uh, the collection, uh, different seasons uh, with Will Wheaton. Yep. Um, so he was able to talk very knowledgeably about Stand By Me or The Body from that book, um, obviously. But when we got to Apt Pupil, it was like, we, we've had this conversation before, uh, like behind the scenes on the show. Like if someone picks Apt Pupil, are we going to do it? My opinion on that like goes back and forth, but I've I've never seen it. I don't really have any particular interest in seeing it. I think the short story is is excellent, and I, I think the short story delivers everything you're talking about. Um, but I put off seeing it for so long, and now knowing what I know, I'm sort of like I don't feel inclined to watch this. I don't want to. I don't want to watch it. And you know, any opinion I have about it at this point would be tainted by that knowledge. So it's mm. like absolutely. I was glad we were able to cover it sort of like you know uh get we, it out of the way yeah well yeah we, we want to cover everything on the show eventually but this was a way to do it without making that the primary focus and i think that was the right way to do it it's it's tough watching it now um precise it's just like you know it's tough watching even woody allen's best stuff now because you mm-hmm. then suddenly real <laughs> watching you know manhattan say and you know see that it's every story that you know, it's a, it's a brilliant movie. It's a fantastic movie. It's it's amazing. But then you watch it knowing what you know about Woody Allen and it becomes creepy. You know, it's you yeah. you see the real life bleeding in to that where you see that creative, you know, that troubled creative, that problematic creative mindset working some shit out, you know, that you didn't recognize before. Um, and it's tough watching at Pupil because I rewatched it for the uh, for the Will Wheaton episode we did in uh it was the first time I'd watched it since really it was 
you know, out there, you know, all the Brian Singer allegations and, and you, you watch that movie and you just, it's weird how he shoots Brad Renfro, who is I think 14 at the time that he made that movie. Yeah. He was 14. Yep. Playing 16, but 14. Yeah. And he shoots him so lovingly the camera like hangs on him and there's like all these you know shirtless shots where he's like the camera's like gliding over is the male gaze is is there that i didn't real recognize his male gaze before so it is it, it, it's it's hard to watch that knowing what we know about brian singer um so yeah it's definitely out of the conversation a lot because of all the problematic shit but uh you're right. You, you're uh, Ian McKellen's fucking great in the movie. Brad Renfro turns in a, a great performance as well. And, you know, it's a believable performance. Elias Coteus is in it and he's, you know, he's got, he's in a very minor role, but you know, he always brings it. And then, and then like you said, David Schwimmer and his mustache. <laughs> I, I definitely wouldn't, I would not recommend going back and watching it now, but I remember seeing it in 1998 because we would just see everything that came out that summer right? or that, that, year and it was like not a bad movie going back and watching it now probably not an option for me yeah it's not good enough to (laughs) if if you have any moral you know qualms about revisiting it it's not good enough to go well fuck you have to watch chinatown though i'm sorry you get you know i know all the shit you got to watch chinatown you know it's not it's not in that level Uh, it's fascinating for film geeks because this is brian singer's follow-up to usual suspects this was his like studio first movie after the independent breakthrough but you know, all that shit's tainted now. It just is. I'm, you know, it, it's hard to whitewash. Hard that. to separate them. Yeah, yeah. All right. What's your number four? Uh, I we're going to be picking Battleground for this slot. Yes, Battleground's on my list too. No shit. I'm impressed. Uh, it's a very deep cut in terms of awareness. You know, I I think most people don't know this exists, but it's the season premiere episode of an anthology series that TNT did back in the day based on, well, it's based on nightmares and dreamscapes, but it has some stories that aren't from nightmares and dreamscapes. Let's not get caught up on the details yeah. though. Including battleground, <laughs> which wasn't in that right. collection. Yeah. This was from right. Night shift. Yep. Indeed. It's a, uh, it's, it's an hour long. It has no dialogue. It was directed by Brian Henson, Jim Henson's son. It stars William Hurt, and he is a hitman of some renown who, long story short, he kills like a, a toy maker and he goes, you know, flies back home, goes to his, his penthouse apartment and a mysterious box arrives on his porch that is filled with what is essentially like uh, enchanted toy soldiers, little army men. And they proceed to fuck his world up for about an hour. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it, so it's like. Imagine if, you know, like Die Hard, but it's in a penthouse and instead of Bruce Willis, it's William Hurt. And instead of terrorists, it's little army guys. Yeah, little green army men, little yeah. plastic green army men. Yeah. And they they come to play, man. They have they have guns and, you know, they uh, they do what they can with those. But then they bring out the choppers. And then it turns out one of them has a nuke. Uh, the special effects in that episode are they're certainly better than anything else you'll see in the rest of that anthology series. Oh, yeah. And I think it's masterfully directed. Um, We revisited that one for an episode of the show not long ago, and I was just blown away by how how good it was. I'd just like to underline just how inventive it is, not just visually, but like Scott said, there's no dialogue. There's no line spoken. You, You start the episode 
with William Hurt on this hit where he's not, of course, talking to anybody. He's just taking out, you know, guards and shit and then getting to Bruce Spence, who is the gyrocopter captain and uh, road warrior. Uh, but he plays the the toy maker and, you know, he kills this dude and the rest of the he, rest of the time, the you know, there's no dialogue spoken. It is just him uh, expressing you have a great actor like William Hurt expressing everything just through body language and looks and real acting I guess he did a lot of emoting there I really appreciated the soldiers in here they start out with their little tiny guns mm-hmm. and they're really not making a dent it's basically like pinpricks in the face yeah. and then they move to like their little rocket launchers uh-huh. helicopters artillery yeah yeah and then there's this like Rambo type soldier who carries like a mini nuke and it is fucking awesome. They just destroy the whole house. There's like nods to Apocalypse Now and <laughs> Die Hard. And uh, and there's also this really weird Coca-Cola product placement in there. Like, I don't know if you've seen it recently, but like there's a moment where he just walks over to the bar after he gets his footlocker in the mail. He walks over to his bar and he just like grabs a can of Coke and takes a long sip of this can of Coke. It's kind of funny. And then just all hell breaks loose. I don't think I noticed that. But let me ask you this question, because it came up, uh, the episode <laughs> that we recorded on on Battleground, We uh, our guest for that one was Fred Raskin. He's an editor. He's worked on a, uh, a number of uh, Quentin Tarantino movies. He's, he did Guardians of the Galaxy. He's doing the upcoming The Suicide Squad. This was his pick for, for the show, a real outlier. And we got into a debate on the air about putting the position that the guy is in in battleground do you think you would be beaten by the army men or do you think you would overcome them now he is he's an assassin so he should have overcome them but me i just fucking leave i just like walk out the door <laughs> that didn't seem to work out too well for william hurt though like he doesn't he, he still fights in the elevator they're, they're gonna come yeah, out these guess are like true. it follows little green yeah, army, see. they're gonna follow him until the end of the earth See, Jason, I said on the show that I would fuck these guys up. I would, I would tap dance all over them. Uh, I'm not, I'm not scared of the army soldiers. Uh, I think it's ridiculous that an assassin would would get taken out by them. It works despite all that. I'm able to <laughs> suspend my disbelief. I just think personally that I would wreck shop if I were put in this position. And our guest and uh, indeed, Vespi disagreed with me and thought I would fall to the soldiers. Yes, I, we we both agreed that that Scott's hubris would be his downfall. That him him being so sure that these things weren't a real threat to him would be what you know he he they'd be like the Lilliputians, right? They just like swarm him and tie him down. I mean, it, it's, no, they wouldn't do. They wouldn't get that far. I'm telling you. And and I like Jason's William Hurt stops walking of out of the fucking apartment, dude. <laughs> kick them aside and be like, I'm going to come back later when y'all work this shit out, whatever's going on here. Hurt's problem was that he, he like hung back. He didn't rush them and he gave them time to like, yes, you know, exactly. Strategize. Exactly. Yeah. You, you got to rush them. You got to take them out before they can do anything. But uh, once again, you're assuming this based on your <laughs> full, full, your, your full knowledge of what they're, what, what's going on. Are you telling me if your fucking toys came to life, you would be like, okay, I'm instantly. What I'm going to do is I'm going to rush and touch these things. And, if they had weapons no, like, in their no, hands, you're going to be taken aback. If they had weapons in their hands, if they had little knives and they had little guns and they had choppers, and they were and shooting you little, enough to, to hurt you, then they're yeah. not going to hurt me with that shit, dude. Have you ever been shot with a BB gun? It hurts, but you're fine. 
You're fine. <laughs> it, unless you get hit like in, and that's like that's a BB. You know, that's like a cannon to them. Right. Mm-hmm. And they're shooting bullets. They're like slivers at best. If you've gotten a tattoo, you've already fought these guys. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. I think my first move would be to just grab them all in one handful and toss them in the fire pit. That's, you know. See? Yeah. Then yeah, the helicopter do. comes out and you think Finally. you're going to grab it just like William Hurt and get all your fingers chopped off no, by the rotor no, blades. No, 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 no. no. I'm, oh. I'm glad I finally found someone that will that agrees with me on this. We, Jason, we are united in our ability to fuck these guys up. Anybody in this situation, knowing f- like full well what the situation is, you- you're taking away the element of surprise here. Like you're you're assuming that that in this insane thing that's happening, that you would have the the foresight and in the the forethought to act rationally. I I think you guys are are setting yourself up for a big fall. That's all I'm saying. Have some humility. And I think. That you are uh, basically tipping your hand here that you're just scared of the army soldiers. All I'm saying is I'm not scared. You know, that's fine. Like, if you want to live in a world of fear like that, that's okay. But I'm not joining you on that trip. And yet if this was a single rat with its weird rat tail, then Scott would be up on a chair and not want to no, talk to No, I'm not scared of hiding. Rats. That was, no, what I was talking you're about scared was of possums. possums. Yeah. Well, I was scared of that possum. It was very big. <laughs> You know, that, that possum was, that possum was like fucking 60 pounds. That's, that's different than an, a little army man. You like, wouldn't touch the possum baby or whatever the fuck. Right. It's like, it's like when you're confronted with something small that you could easily, as you would usually say, usually say, I would just, you know, I would not be afraid of Chucky. I would just punt him. You know, it's like when you're confronted with <laughs> a little Chucky thing that's Chucky size, you're not like, oh, I'm going to punt this thing. You ran back in the house and hid behind the blinds, man. So it's, you know, I think that's a, that's a, a, a hefty thing that was hissing right in my face. You realize like no one listening to this has any idea about the possum situation. <laughs> you know, so this is very confusing to everyone. But I basically I valiantly fought. And, and courageously ran away from a, a, a possum in my backyard. And when I say fought, I mean, I looked at it and it made a mean face at me and I ran away. But that had heft to it. If it had leapt off the fence at me, it would have fucking that thing. It would have been like one of my dogs jumping at me. If it hits you at the wrong angle, it's going to take you down. You know, little plastic army, man. Ba-ba! I'm going to stomp on you. You're done. We're relitigating battleground. <laughs> <laughs> Spent 40 minutes on ballot. <laughs> if you want more on Battleground, go listen to the King Cast episode, and uh, maybe that will help you also form your opinion. Yeah. You're going to hear me say a lot of what I just said, but <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in, a, in agreement with Jason. Well, that's, uh, I guess that's both of our number fours because, yep, that was on my list too. So I guess we'll roll right into your number three. We're going to go with Maximum Overdrive here. You son of a bitch. Hi. My name is Stephen King. I've written several motion pictures, but I want to tell you about a movie called Maximum Overdrive, which is the first one I've directed. Wow. What in the dickens is going on around here? A lot of people have directed Stephen King novels and stories, and I finally decided if you want something done right, you ought to do it yourself. Who was driving it? I don't know. Curtis! It's coming after us! It was my first picture as a director. And you know something? I sort of enjoyed it. 
here's my defense of maximum overdrive. And just for the record, I DM'd Eric and told him we should put this at number one and say, fuck it and go balls out. But oh, shit. I didn't see that. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. It's fine. The damage has been done. Here's the thing about maximum overdrive. I grew up having seen it several times on like basic cable or whatever when I was a kid. At, at that age, I did not appreciate what maximum overdrive was up to. It would seem like I would because that seems like a thing Taylor made for for kids to watch. And in a lot of ways, I think it is. But I didn't I didn't really like it. And it was always a punchline movie to me. You know, it was it was not something that I had any real respect for. But then in the course of doing this show, we've had to watch it several times now. And hearing other people talk about how passionate they are about Maximum Overdrive uh, has impacted the way I feel about it. And in revisiting it, you know, so many times in the space of a year um, with, you know, 20, 2020 and 2021 eyes. It's given me a new appreciation for it. Uh, it is not a well-made movie by any stretch of the imagination. This is what happens when you turn over the reins of a, a, a Dino De Laurentiis uh, production to someone who's <laughs> never directed anything, and it's a big special effects sort of thing. But um, I feel like there's a lot to love in Maximum Overdrive, just if, if for no other reason as a time capsule and a, a, a like an oddity within Stephen King's overall career. I now find it very entertaining. I built like a, a theater in my backyard with a screen and a projector and all this shit to get us through quarantine and throughout have had friends over and we sit distanced and watch movies out there. I screened that one not long ago. Uh, I can't say that everyone loved it, but the people that loved it really loved it. It's a great movie to watch with a crowd. I'll go to the bat for that one all day now in a way that I would not have uh, as recently as a year and a half ago. Hmm. That's awesome. You guys did a commentary on it, right? You did with yeah. the Nacho Vigalondo. Yeah. Yeah. The madman Nacho. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Love that Nacho. Yeah, we do. We do commentaries on our uh, Patreon uh, for our Patreon subscribe. We do like four extra episodes a month and one of them is always a commentary. You mentioned first time director. But you didn't mention who directed it. This was by Stephen King. Yes. Yep. Like his very first, his first time and, getting and, behind the camera. And uh, very much last uh, directorial <laughs> effort. <laughs> he He's asked in interviews often like whether or not he would direct again. And he's like, yeah, sure. And I'm just like, I would love it someday. Just I, I can't imagine what now Stephen King directing looks like. Because 80 Stephen King, one, had the benefit of the, you know, two truck tons of cocaine or whatever the fuck <laughs> yeah. uh you know fueling the whole thing but you know can you imagine a misfire that is just filled with shitty cg you know like it, it all the charm's gone if, if maximum overdrive was a big like early cg spectacle like you know mid 90s yeah era lawnmower man era uh you know thing that it would be nigh unwatchable uh, but there, there is a charm for everything being just so grounded and you can smell the gas out coming off the trucks almost, you know, it's, uh, and the sweat of Emilio Estevez yeah, and the, and the sweat of the girl that he licks off her brow after sex, because that's what you do. Yes. Um, you guys don't do that every time. Oh, no. not every time it's my, it's my finishing move too. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh but it, it's a highly, it's so much fun and it's not meant to be taken seriously, even you know, though it's not a an amazingly well-made movie, and I'm not going to give the cre complete credit to King for the cult status it's achieved, 
but it's also it's it's not meant to be taken seriously it, it just from the very beginning yeah. the first thing that happens is is you know a bank uh ticker thing says fuck you and calls uh, stephen king in his cameo an asshole you know the atm calls him an asshole so like you you know what movie you're getting into when you watch that one yeah, it's a perfect piece of genre cinema. Just everything is batshit crazy, and uh, Emilio Estevez is running around. Yep, and they fire rocket launchers at Greed Goblin trucks. I don't think I had fully formulated the thought before doing this show, but one of the, the one of the um, more fun parts of doing the King Cast is that I'm rewatching all these movies, sometimes for the first time in 10, 20 years, you know, stuff that I just have sort of taken for granted and not really done the mental homework that goes on with seeing the 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 themes that carry through them and such and one thing that i've learned in the process or that i've come to believe in the process of doing the show is that stephen king is his tastes in terms of horror movies lie mostly within the goofy and Mm -hmm. and toward that ec comics sensibility this comes through in creep show creep show 2 it comes through loud and clear in maximum overdrive you know this is a this is a schlocky dude and i think that that's what his tastes are i'm sure he loves shawshank redemption but i think he would love shawshank redemption even more if it had like a corpse getting revenge on somebody in it you know what i'm saying <laughs> like that's those are his sense of, that, i think that's his core sensibility when it comes to horror movies a little goofy a little scary but it's mostly just fun well, if you ever get him on the show, now you can pitch your Shawshank 2 <laughs> idea to him. <laughs> you never know. Shawshank 2. Even more redemption. <laughs> Redempt harder. <laughs> Redempt harder. You talked about funny. You talked about goofy. My number three is neither of those things. My number one and two are, but I want to knock this one out of the way. It's also part of Nightmares and Dreamscapes, and that's Umni's Last Case from 2006. <laughs> If you think your dreams are disturbing, (laughs) imagine the nightmares of Stephen King. What are you, some sort of a horror movie guy? No, Clyde, I'm a literary guy. Interesting pick, interesting pick. Like I said, part of the miniseries, it was directed by Rob Bowman, who directed a ton of X-Files uh, episodes, yeah. and oddly enough, Parker Lewis can't lose episodes, uh, but he also directed like the McConaughey classic, Reign of Fire, in 2002. This one is kind of interesting. It starts as a like a noir film, mm-hmm. and we just follow this detective named Clyde Umney, played by William H. Macy, who's awesome, and he soon finds himself face-to-face with the reality that Number one, he's only a character in books. And number two, the author who writes the books, also played by William H. Macy, doing his best Stephen King impression. Like, he looks just like Stephen King. Steps into his office, armed with the ultimate weapon, a Sony Vio laptop. The writer's life is kind of shit, so he wants to switch places with this private detective. But soon we realize that these two can't survive in each other's world. The only reason it makes my list is because William H. Macy's performance is awesome Mm -hmm. and he was nominated for an emmy for this he didn't win but he was nominated the downside to this is number one there's really no ending it just kind of ends in the (laughs) middle of their plight whereas the two aren't like one's not a great writer and one's a shitty detective and it never ties those ends up right but i always thought it was really interesting that it's got a very light-hearted and fun tone despite 
very dark material in there. Yeah, that's that's fair to say. That that's the only other episode of the Nightmares and Dreamscapes TV show that I like. I don't love it. Not like I love Battleground, but I but I like it. The rest of them are to some degree or another just real bad. They range from like boring to just absolutely awful. Yeah, I'm I'm still holding a grudge about Crouch End that they ma- look at how they massacred my boy on that one. <laughs> like fucking they just <laughs> just ruined it. It's also got, you know, they got a hell of a band in there. Road Virus heads north. Those aren't very good at all. Those two are the 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 best from that series. So I think it's interesting. You've for two of the five slots in your list, you've pulled the two great to good episodes <laughs> out of Nightmares and Dreamscapes. I'm a big William H Macy fan, so this one has always stuck with me. And I love the campy noir vibe of like the first. 20 minutes of this thing it's mm-hmm. just really fun yeah yeah totally i think for number two we're going to go with uh 1408 when mike enslin lost his daughter the afterlife became his obsession you probably want to hear all about our haunted history but after years of searching he no longer believes so you're saying there's no such thing as ghosts i'm saying i've never seen one nothing would make me happier than to experience a paranormal event gerald olin manager of the dolphin if i can just get the key to 1408 in the 95 years of the hotel's existence there have been 56 deaths in 1408 56 no one's ever lasted more than an hour the first victims to Kevin O'Malley. Cut his own throat. Do not stay in that room. Which is kind of a sister story to The Shining in a weird way. It's another haunted hotel story that King mm-hmm. wrote. Uh, but it's different in that it is not a hotel itself that's haunted. It's a single room. 1408 and and it, it features the main character is a guy in the movies played by john cusack um who was he wrote like a great like critically successful book out of college and then has pretty much floundered and is making a living writing about like debunking paranormal stuff so he he is now going to very famous like haunted hotels and haunted you know locations and camping out in cemeteries and shit and uh, writing about his experience as a cynic of not believing any of this stuff um and then he gets a postcard in the mail saying hey you should probably like in his peel box like you should probably check out the dolphin hotel in new york in in 1408 and when he goes to check in or goes to do it he has this very long sit down with the hotel's manager played by uh, sam jackson who is doing everything he can to dissuade him from going in that room. And what's uh, what's so great about it is the beginning of the story and the beginning of the movie is everybody talking about how fucked up this room is. And so by the time he actually goes into this room, you know, they're talking about like, like the maids will maid services will, will only go in once a month to, to, to uh, turn down the room. And when they do, they go in in pairs because when they don't like one of like the last person who went in alone, like gouged her own eyes out in the bathroom and she was only in there for like three minutes or something. And like all this crazy stuff you're being told. And so it's building this anticipation of what's in the room. And then he gets in there and it's just a kind of a boring hotel room. Uh, and then weird shit starts to happen and reality starts bending and, characters show up who might or might not be real and and it, it's a it's a great 
like uh, it's a great story and the movie, which uh, I didn't bother to look it up, but I think it's it was a mid aughts, late aughts maybe. It's a really well done movie. John Cusack kills it. It's uh, you know for be- it being kind of a single location thing for like two thirds of the movie. It is very inventively uh, shot. It's got some really cool effects. It's got you know they they don't shy away from the kind of mind bending you know, a uh, uh, world distorting thing that's happening. Um, and uh, it, it's one that was oddly very successful when it came out. I think maybe up until uh, it, it was one of the top grossing Stephen King movies, but it's one that nobody really ever talks about oh, wow. anymore. Um, we did an episode on it with Mike Flanagan uh, and he was saying that uh, like his career was kind of born. He wrote Oculus uh, uh, which was the movie that really launched him um, in part because he tried to get the rights to 1408 and couldn't. So, so he like essentially turned a lot of what he wanted to do with that story into Oculus. It is a great one. It's, it's, it's one that uh, is definitely high on our list. 1408. Good choice. I haven't not seen that since it came out in theaters, but maybe worth a revisit. Totally. They couldn't worth recapture it. the magic with the two when they went to sell. No, yeah, Fucking yeah. They, they reteamed Sam Jackson and, and uh, John Cusack for Cell, and uh, Cell is a really good premise of of a story. It's um, if anybody's seen the the like low budget horror movie The Signal, it's kind of that where it's you know instead of a TV, a signal on a TV driving people crazy, it's uh, you know uh, cell phones. People cell phones send out a signal that turns the people on them into zombies, like literal <laughs> zombies, but I guess like 28 <laughs> yeah. days later, kind of zombies. Right. Yeah. So it's a really cool setup. And the, the book itself is, is really messy and l- loses the thread real quickly. Uh, but the movie's damn near unwatchable. It's, it's real fucking tough. Yeah. I'm going to be real pissed at whoever picks that one for the show. <laughs> <laughs> I've never actually finished watching it. I, I put it on like, I'm not Same. even exaggerating like three or four times and I cannot get more than, Maybe 40 minutes into it is about as long as I go. And then I'm just like on my phone and not paying attention anymore. My number two, I think you're both going to disagree with Ooh. Uh, just from listening to your show on it. <laughs> but it's more of a personal pick for me. And that's from 1996, the movie Thinner. Ooh. Jesus Christ. Did you weigh yourself? 297. Billy, you were 297 last week. It takes some time for these diets to work. For Billy Halleck, life is sweet. Maybe I gotta rub the Buddha! Bigger is better. I hate it when you do that. No, you love it. And too much is never enough. Winning, winning. You've got to stop eating like that. I can't help it, Heidi. All I think about is food. But tonight, all of that will change. You kill my daughter and I curse you. Thinner. From the best selling novel by Stephen King comes the new shape of terror. <laughs> I know, Scott, in particular, you hate thinner. Oh, I hate it. Yes. <laughs> I'll hear your well, I'll hear your case. Why. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll hear you out. Just like we learn every time we listen to the King cast, everybody's got kind of a new entry point for Stephen King. And it seems like most of your guests have seen the movies first and then they get into the books later. Hmm. Well, I got into the books first and then got into the movies later. And Thinner was actually the first Stephen King movie 
that I ever saw in theaters. Mm. And it might have been the first Stephen King movie that I had ever seen, knowing that it was a Stephen King movie, Mm because I did watch The Running Man before that, uh, but I had no idea. So my memories of going to see Thinner are me and my brother begging my mom to go and watch Thinner and then regretting it 15 minutes in when there's a blowjob scene (laughs) almost instantly. And when you're like, I must have been 14 at the time. You read the book, though. You must have known something was coming. No, no, I hadn't read oh. the thinner book. Oh, okay. I had read sorry, a different Stephen King book. Okay, right on. I had read uh, Needful Things was my entry point. Like That one's horny as fuck, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you haven't seen Thinner, it features Robert John Burke wearing the worst nutty professor fat suit <laughs> ever and this is like his follow-up to robocop 3 where he played robocop so he goes from looking like robocop to looking like an actual cop (laughs) but he's a piece of shit lawyer and he's really good at getting crime bosses off in court but he's not strong enough to resist a bag of cheetos and he's just like always eating his wife bless her heart she's trying to take his mind off of food and decides i'm just gonna give him a blowjob in the car and while he's distracted he runs over a Romani immigrant. We'll just say Romani because in the movie it's just referred to as gypsy over and over again. Yes, we learned a just... learned a valuable lesson on that episode. <laughs> I mean, we were referring to her as Romani, but like we looked into it beforehand, you know, right. to make sure because it seemed pretty offensive. Yeah, if you watch it now, all they do is say gypsy over and over <laughs> yeah. again. But he runs over her. He gets off scot free because of his court connections, and then the woman's father puts a curse on him which is just the classic line from the trailer, thinner, and thinner. makes him rapidly. <laughs> yeah, Everybody knows that line. And it makes him just rapidly lose weight until he's just, well, it doesn't go into like skeleton size in the movie. It's just like a normal sized dude. But I always thought it was interesting, number one, because it's a movie with zero protagonists. Mm-hmm. There's nobody to root for here. Uh, there are a lot of fun curses in the film. So whereas he got the one that, makes him lose weight rapidly there's one that turns into a lizard mm-hmm. which looks awful there's stephen king has a cameo as like a pharmacist dr banger yep. is his name yep uh, Subtle. And he starts turning into a plant uh there's some other there's another cool one where like a, a dude gets acne all over his face or all over his body and it's got a very interesting ending with a with a slice of pie I just always thought this was cool because, you know, you have a lawyer that never attempts to become a better person. And in a lot of these types of movies, you'll have the main character try to do a 180 in order to redeem himself. And there's no redemption here. No, it's just about saving his own life. That's the only thing. Yeah, it's a pretty interesting body horror movie. And I'm a fan of those. And I think it's way better than like the 15 percent of critics that like it on on Rotten Tomatoes. So I'm going to say thinner as my number. And and you've watched this recently. Yeah, I rewatched parts of it for this show <laughs> and i know how ridiculous it is i know how bad it is Be- because because wampler i feel like would have agreed with you if we had done this before we recorded our episode and revisited it yeah that's true i i have fond memories of seeing uh thinner when it came out and uh in my mind that was like always one i liked uh but i was also like 15 when i saw it or something you know, and I was very stupid at 15, as most 15 year olds are. <laughs> and we rewatched for the show and it took me two sittings to get through it. I hated it on a molecular level. Um, it's an ugly movie. It is an ugly movie. You know, not even setting aside the morality of it. It's just ugly to look at. 
the fat suit they've got the guy in appears to be made of fiberglass. It doesn't move or like jiggle <laughs> like actual bodies do. You know, it's just like he's encased in this sort of, you know, fiberglass chunk body. And uh, it's it, he's so repulsive to look at. He's always cramming food in his fucking mouth. Uh, all the characters, the characters are reprehensible in a way where it's not even fun. I hated everything about it. But I hear what you're saying, and uh, I respect it. What about you, Eric? Which side are you on? Uh, I'm definitely leaning a lot more towards Wampler's side, but uh, I'm not as hundred <laughs> percent revulsed by you know the movie. It's not good, it, and it doesn't really hold up. And it, it very much, I wasn't very much like you guys. Like uh, I, I was of the age where I could voluntarily go to see movies at that point when this came out. Um, I think uh, my first King-ish movie in a theater must have been Pet Cemetery 2, if that counts. Because I, I know I went to go see that knowing what it was, you know, and, and mm-hmm. I think I rode my bike to the mall to go to go watch it. Sure. And then uh, Thinner, that was 96. 96, 96, yeah. Yeah, so that's right around when I was getting my car for the first time, you know, being a driver for the first time. I do have fond memories of it and a little bit of nostalgia because of that. And everybody who was a kid in that time, remember the trailer was everywhere with that thin <laughs> line in it. Yeah. And the line I'm being erased. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's so, it's so muddled and it is, it's hard to watch now just in terms of it's gross. The effects, uh, the, the, Scott's not wrong. The fat suit's very off putting and, and you know, but I, I, even if you give them the credit of doing that on purpose, which I don't think they did, nope. Um, uh, in if if you like try to give them the credit, like like how uh, Andy Muschietti for it, how he put all the adults in dairy and like really grotesque, weird fat suits, but he did it for a reason. I don't know, man. Like I'm, I'm fumbling here because it's it's a movie that I respect <laughs> occupying this like weird, dark like kind of grody feel like you need to take a shower after watching it place. But it's just, I don't think it's good enough. Like watch a Paul Schrader movie. If you, if you want that, that feeling, you know, like watch something with a little (laughs) bit more depth to it. So yeah, I'm definitely more on Wampler side on this one. I'm happy to be an Island under myself (laughs) with you guys. Like, so you're, you you two teamed up against me about the little green army man. And I'll, I'll, uh, we'll, we'll bully you now for for this thinner love. (laughs) Well, hopefully we can all agree on our number one, Scott Wampler, Eric Vespi. What's your number one underrated or underappreciated Stephen King adaptation? Uh, I'll name this one, but I think I, I think this is really Eric's baby. He specifically put this one on the list, and uh, I don't disagree. Uh, our, our number one pick is The Green Mile by Frank Darabont. John Coffey, you have been condemned to die in the electric chair by a jury of your peers, sentence imposed by a judge in good standing in this state. Questions? Do you leave the light on after bedtime? I know violent men. I deal with them day in and day out. There doesn't seem to be any real violence in him. Until he kills a couple of little girls. John Coffey is a murderer. I don't think he did it at all. Take my hand, both. You see for yourself. Yes. So the reason why I picked this, and again, like when we made this list, we didn't like actually put it in order of like a preference. So I wouldn't say like if you held a gun to my head, like what is the most underappreciated King thing? Green Mile might not be it, but 
the thing with Green Mile is it is Frank Darabont following up Shawshank Redemption, which is one of the all-time adaptations of King's stuff. But it, he's bringing the same level of craft and talent to this story with killer performances from Michael Clark Duncan, Tom Hanks, uh, Sam Rockwell, Michael Jeter. Like, everybody in this movie is perfectly cast. They're all bringing their A-games. It is, you know, it is not afraid to be almost three, maybe it's longer than three hours. It's a long, long movie, and it's not afraid to, to uh, kind of live in that world the way that the 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 book did. I, the reason why I, I would put it on here is that Shawshank Redemption kind of steals a lot of the oxygen from Green Mile. Um, both films were nominated for Oscars, Green Mile... Did Michael Clark Duncan win? I think he might have won. Both movies exist within a certain time period made by the same filmmaker who's highly regarded, who would also later go on to do The Mist. But it, this just movie's just not in the conversation. Like Shawshank is is talked about. The Mist is talked about because of the ending a lot. And it's more, you know, B-movie fun. But like Green Mile is is just kind of out of the conversation. So that's why I felt strongly about putting it on the underappreciated list because it is a, an extremely strong movie. It's hard to watch, you know, in, in the best ways possible it, because you're, he, you know, Darabont is nailing the emotion of, of this thing. And, I, <laughs> and uh, to, to give a, a real quick story is one of the things that I've been doing uh, in quarantine to kind of feel like I have a connection to what I used to love doing like which is going to see movies in a theater and experiencing thing with an audience or having my nephews come over and watching introducing them to movies you know that they'd never seen and experiencing movies new through through young eyes um is i've been watching a bunch of reaction videos on youtube for uh, you know for so it'll be like somebody will watch planes trains and automobiles for the first time and, and like it'll be a 30 minute video which is them essentially you'll see the movie in in the in a box on the screen and you'll see essentially watch them watching a movie which sounds boring as fuck but it it is scratching an itch <laughs> uh that that I didn't realize I needed scratching you know not being able to experience movies with other people and hearing other people react to to things comedies horror movies whatever um and so weirdly enough I've been kind of addicted to this and I saw one person right after we did our episode on Green Mile uh, with Mike Flanagan, uh, he came back to to guest on the show, and he picked Green Mile. Um, right after I rewatched it, there was one of these <laughs> one of these reaction videos. Somebody who'd never seen Green Mile was like, "I'm going to watch this and react." And it was this like Russian lady who you know who spoke broken English, but she was watching it and getting fucking furious at the people who made her watch this, <laughs> and like anything that having to do with Percy. She was like the second, the first time he showed up, he's like, she's like, oh, I don't like this guy. And then like when he fucking stomps on Mr. Jingles, he was just like, you fucking piece of shit. Why the fuck are you making me watch this? What the fuck is wrong with you people? Like all this stuff. He's like, and then every, and then Percy's like, oh, trying to worm his way out of something. He's just like, oh, you fucking piece of shit. I hope you die. Like, and she's just like getting so fucking angry at it. And it, it it's a movie that can, can bring out that kind of, reaction it is a very emotional movie it is this, i'm sorry I'm, I'm rambling here but but it, it's it's a movie that if any other filmmaker or any other author had written and had it at, be, uh, adapted from their work it would be the best thing in their filmography or their 
their bibliography, right? Right, right. But just but just because it's uh, you know it's Frank Darabont following up one of the greatest movies of all time, you know, and one of the greatest Stephen King adaptations of all time, uh, I think that it's it, like I said, I think that Shawshank just sucks the oxygen away from this one, and the conversation's just not there. Agreed on all of the above. Yeah, it was nominated for four Oscars: Best Picture, Best Supporting Actor, Best Writing, Adapted right. Screenplay, and Best Sound. So yeah, good call. And you're right. I don't think about this one very much and I should probably go back and revisit it. Uh, Number one for me, 1985's Silver Bullet. I got to talk to you. You won't let go of it, will you? I saw what I saw. Psychotics are more active when the moon is full. And this guy's a psycho. When they catch him, you're going to find out he's just as human as you and me. Based on the cycle of the werewolf, it stars Corey Haim, Gary Busey, and Everett McGill. But it, to me, it has one of Gary Busey's best performances outside of Point Break and Under Siege. <laughs> and I'm guessing that Stephen King, I think, I'm pretty sure Stephen King wrote the screenplay for this. He did. So you have like prime coked out Stephen King. Mm-hmm. You have prime coked out Gary Busey. And it's just so much fun. To me, it reminds me of those Amblin movies with kids just doing wild shit that just would never be accepted now in the same vein as like the Goonies, yeah. for example. Totally, totally. It takes place in Maine, of course, but it looks more like residents of somewhere in the deep south. Yeah. Uh, it's about a werewolf who's killing people in town, but it's not killing people like in the typical werewolf way. Uh, it's punching people's heads off, impaling them with floorboards. And there's this paraplegic kid named Marty, who's played by Corey Haim, And he's like the only one who suspects that it's something other than a man. Gary Busey, though, wins this movie for Uncle Red forever. He plays Red. (laughs) Yep. He's he's like the perfect stereotype for drinking and divorcing in (laughs) 80s movies. He's the uncle that every kid wanted as as a child, but no parents would ever want in the family. He gives Marty this pimped out wheelchair motorcycle hybrid (laughs) that he calls the silver bullet. He later crafts a silver bullet for the kid. The werewolf doesn't look great. Like, I know that just researching it, there was a lot of back and forth between Stephen King and Dino De Laurentiis about the look of it. And it ends up looking more like that fucking bear from the Chuck E. Cheese band. <laughs> yep. Than something that's terrifying, but. Which is a little disappointing considering that the, uh, the Bernie Wrightson art from the right. cycle of the werewolf is like some of the best werewolf designs that i've ever seen like that's one of the best looking werewolves ever ever put to paper yeah i agree i know and and king wanted it to be scarier but uh that's that's what we got it has a great climax too with uh like a face-off of of three people in this house just waiting for the werewolf and the werewolves just kind of taunting them mm-hmm. definitely my number one silver bullet i think it deserves more love in those those 80s adaptations i love this movie yeah i think that's i, th- I think yeah i think this is a respectable choice you know not like thinner, which was you know, very unfortunate. <laughs> um, I'm glad I bounced back. Yeah, you bounced back. You, uh, you redeemed it, yourself. It's a fun. I mean, <laughs> you you've said a lot of what I already would have said. It does have that Amblin feel to it, with perhaps a, a harder edge. Um, it's goofy as fuck, but it's also fun as fuck. I don't really have a big problem with the way the werewolf looks. Uh, I I think that the kills in it are really good. You know. Right off the bat, you're getting a yeah. guy's head slapped off his fucking neck. 
You know, <laughs> I'm never gonna not, not appreciate that. You got the you got Corey Haim in a rocket powered wheelchair, as you have already noted. Love that too. <laughs> I guess it's more of a, a as you pointed out, a motorcycle hybrid. But I'll never not think of it as a rocket powered wheelchair. That's just how I think of it. It's also a fun little mystery on top of that. Um, figuring out who the who the bad guy is. I mean, that's made pretty. Yeah. I, it's it's not a difficult mystery to solve. To be clear, you know, uh, Omni could definitely figure this one out. But you know, it's uh, it's it's still very it's very entertaining, and I think it holds up all these years later. The way the kid solves the mystery is cool too. Mm-hmm. Funnily enough, this was the first episode of the King cast that we ever recorded was on Cycle of the Werewolf slash Silver Bullet. Mm-hmm. It, it was the second to air. The first one that aired was uh, Kumail Nanjiani doing The Running Man for us. But the first one we actually recorded was with Michael Doherty, who did the last Godzilla movie. Um, Trick and, or Treat. Uh, Trick or Treat. Yeah. Uh, he's uh, and th- that was the first episode where or he, it was the first episode we recorded. So it was obviously the first episode that we noticed this. But this, we assume that when we started this thing and we were asking people to come on, we would have to be, you know, telling everybody who brought the stand and it and the shining to us to fuck off that, you know, we can't just do those <laughs> movies over and over again. And the first person we approached fucking picked cycle of the werewolf. And I was just like, holy shit, this is great. Like, you right. know, we're going to, you know, people actually don't, it, it actually took a long time for somebody to, to pick it. It was a good like uh, kind of trendsetter for the show, but uh, but we kind of figured out there that what's interesting about Silver Bullet is, like you said, it was written by King, but the source material started off as a calendar. It wasn't supposed to be anything in depth. The idea was that it would just be Bernie Wrightson hmm. illustrating uh, a calendar, a horror calendar about a werewolf killing somebody every month because every month there's a full moon, right? Mm-hmm. And um, And King would write like, 500 words or whatever that would go go in the calendar itself and uh like as you read through cycle of the werewolf that's how it starts and like each month progressively gets longer and longer and about halfway through they go fuck it this is a novella you know thing now novelette i think is the term that they use oh yes that's where that came from yeah yeah novelette Uh, and uh and because of that it's really interesting because there is no main character until King gets halfway through and figures out he needs somebody to bridge this. It's just like this, this month, the werewolf kills this person this month, the werewolf kills this person. Uh, and then they introduce Marty, the kid in the wheelchair. And uh, he becomes kind of the de facto main character, him and his sister. And, uh, uh, and so what we landed on when we were talking about this was what's fascinating is King adapting this. This is his chance of actually, making this a real story for him. Like he's making it a cohesive story from the beginning, you know, beginning, middle end as if he, you know, this is his redo of that. This is how he would write it. If it was a legit thing and not didn't just start off as a, an exercise of, you know, can, can he write about a, a kill every, every month, you know? Um, and so silver bullet as a movie is actually <laughs> the 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 version of the story that we didn't get so it's like the un- unique among king things is it's the like more definitive version of the story than the actual original material was i think it's the first movie and probably the only movie i've ever seen adapted from a calendar though. yeah <laughs> where, where, where do you see the thomas kincaid project i'm working on <laughs> <laughs> Are there any stories that you really wish would be adapted into a movie that maybe haven't been? 
Well, my, my usual go-to here um, is looks like it might actually be happening now. It's the Talisman, which uh, they just uh, announced yeah. as the, the Duffer brothers from Stranger Things fame are working with Steven Spielberg and Amblin for uh, a Netflix uh, miniseries of the Talisman. Um, so that actually might happen. Uh, I mean, listen, the, it, that, that is, it's a great like epic fantasy thing. Of course we want to, we would love to see dark tower actually done right. You know, there there's that, that would be like kind of the dream, like a real deal dark towers, you know, series that just fucking gets everything right. That is, you know, whether or not that's even possible, I couldn't tell you, you know, that these might, these books might be impossible to adapt. I don't know. But, um, but that would be, that would be my dream. If I could wish anything into existence, it'd probably be a dark tower series. And uh, my my go to pick on this is always from a Buick Eight. I have a really soft spot for for that novel. It's about some some cops who come into uh, possession of an abandoned car, which turns out to be a portal to another world. And so they've got this thing like parked out in a barn out out behind their uh, their barracks or something. They're they're state troopers, I guess, not just like city cops. And the trunk of this car just keeps spitting out hor- horrifying alien creatures at them. And they're like trying to wrap their heads around it. I don't know if anyone else will like this movie, but me, but I don't care. Like I'm, I'm really hoping it happens one day. Uh, apparently Tom Jane's uh, production company has the rights for this and they've got a, they've got a director picked out. They've got a, a script written, but uh, according to the interview we, we did with him last year, uh, it turns out, that uh, movies about cops are just not in a, a hot commodity right now in <laughs> in Hollywood. Um, oh, how weird. Yeah, I can't imagine why. So it might be a while before we see that one. But I also I, I just have a feeling it's it's going to get made and um, it's going to have to fuck up really bad for me not to love it, because I, I think I, I'm just so fascinated by the the weirdness of that story. And, and the the creatures that do emerge from this thing are just fascinating to me i don't i i don't i don't completely understand why i love that book so much but but i do and uh i think if you if you uh get a good team on it which which i think tom jane's got a pretty decent uh team in place i forget who he had picked for the director but uh uh, jim mickle wasn't it jim mickle yes yes cold in july oh cool as as long as they bring the effects to it you know uh it, it stands a very good chance of being uh something special so i'm I'm rooting for that one to actually get made what about you cool. do you have one? Oh shoot uh ah, you asked the question and you don't have an answer <laughs> off the top i'll say i am the doorway i think that would be a pretty cool like that's about an astronaut that comes back and all of a sudden he finds out that he has eyes in his hands mm-hmm. and uh basically aliens can see through him and they detest human beings and make him start doing crazy shit. And I think that could be like a really cool exploitation style horror movie. Oh yeah. That would be fun. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's some good ones that could work like in, in an anthology or something. The jaunts one that we, we both love. Uh, They're making like an ongoing mini or an ongoing series, not even a mini series of it now, I guess, or they're attempting to, Um, I don't know how the fuck you do that because it's a very contained story. You know that one's a great one. If people haven't read it, it's it's uh it's essentially a a, a world in which we've invented a, a form of teleportation uh, that's 
changes everything. It, you can go from a planet to planet. You can go anywhere on Earth, you know, to another place in a blink of an eye. The the point the problem is you kind of have to be asleep, um, and people don't know exactly why. Uh, well, I guess they do figure out why. Right? There is the, the there's a history of, of people going insane if they're awake, um, and they go through this thing. And this one kid hears a story, his father telling him the story about how all this uh, teleportation stuff works while they're waiting at the airport, essentially for, for, for jaunting. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, the kid decides that he wants to see what uh, happens when you're awake and what happens isn't uh, very pleasant for him or us as readers. <laughs> so uh, it is, it is a, a really great story and it's uh, like bar none. The creepiest thing King has ever written is the last page of that story uh, in my mind. So, and that's never been adapted yet. And another great choice. That's uh, that's another one that I haven't read yet. I know you guys got to get out of here. Look, for more Stephen King content, head over to the King Cast. You're going to find something that you'll love over there. And for more top five lists, of course, you got the Force Five. If you have a top five list you want to toss my way, head to force5podcast.com and fill out the guest request form. And while you're at it, rate and review the show on whatever platform you use to listen to The Force 5, and follow me on Instagram and Twitter so you can tell me what we missed. Intro and outro bumpers come courtesy of Nate Spears. The top five list bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and go watch some Stephen King adaptations, not named Cell. Thank you.